Everything that we're doing in this series on prayer is to inspire you to pray. It's not to inform you with nifty ideas. Uh, although one of the things that does help us pray is having a stimulated holy imagination. And when I use the word imagination, surely you know by now, I'm saying this for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with, with what we've taught before, the imagination is not imaginary. Those are two different words. The imagination is a gift from God to see the invisible real. Uh, it's got other definitions, but for our purposes, that's the main definition. To stir up your holy imagination so that when you go in to pray, whether you've had a bad day or not, whether you're under a lot of pressure or sorrow or disappointment or discouragement or just feel blah and passive, whatever the case may be, you're able to put yourself in the presence of the Lord. And like David said in Psalm 16, I set the Lord always before me so I shall not be moved. You're able to, so to speak, set the Lord before you as you set yourself before him. And uh, you're able to begin to picture regardless of how weak your picture-making faculty may be, you're able to to conceptualize in some degree enough to move you out of passivity and prayerlessness into effective prayer. Uh, Remember, in times past, we've referred to the fact, and we will probably talk about it more, that one of the great hindrances to prayer is to check with your feelings to see if you feel like praying. And the enemy, who is a master at manipulating the five-sense world, will see to it that you don't feel like praying. And as a result, you never pray because you so rarely feel like praying. And if he, he can do that with moods. He can do that with weird atmospheres. He can do that with conversations that turn into arguments. He can do that with self-condemnation. He can do that with stirring up lust or stirring up anger or stirring up self-pity or you just, I mean the whole list. I want to tell you I'm more convinced than ever after walking with the Lord and, and wrestling with myself in prayer struggles for over 50 years, well over 50 years, uh, what the enemy's goal is in temptation is not usually the sin that he's tempting you with as much as it is with the self-condemnation that results from the sin which will keep you out of intimacy with God and out of prayer and out of intercession. Because intercessory prayer from a believer who has set set himself or set herself before the Lord to make uh, make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit is a great danger to him and he feels uh, the the sting of it uh, greatly it, it's a it's a wonderful weapon that should that should motivate you to pray uh, if nothing else does but what should motivate you to pray the most is the knowledge that there's no such thing as prayer that doesn't get answered or prayer that uh, is not effective or prayer that just falls to the ground any time it is in the, the heart and mouth of a, an earnest, humble believer who has set himself or set herself to seek the Lord. Uh, I mean, the devil can quote sermons to you uh, where a well-meant sermon becomes an, a weapon in the hand of the enemy to beat you to death with all the things you did not do right so that you can't enter into prayer. You know, you lay all that legalism aside and uh, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the pearls of wisdom from that sermon that need to be remembered. But the other stuff is just chaff that needs to be cast aside. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the favorite ones of the enemy to quote is, you can't pray. He, he, the Bible says, he who... Who can ascend to the mountain of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, you don't have clean hands and you don't have a pure heart. And then he starts listing to you all the stuff that keeps you from prayer, that that makes you unworthy to pray, which is just a lie of the enemy. 
uh, even if it's not a lie, even if he's quoting stuff you've really done. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you bathe yourself in the presence of the Lord, and then you do have clean hands and a pure heart. And a pure heart doesn't mean a heart that is uh, without struggle or without mixture, but it's a heart that's seeking the Lord with all it knows how. We all have a pure heart if we're seeking the Lord at all. So anyway, that's that's an introduction. We're going to be in several verses today. I want to, I want you to just be aware. Psalm two, and Psalm one hundred and ten, and then we're going to go over to First Timothy chapter one and two, and then First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Uh, Closing out with Romans 5, Revelation 1, and Revelation chapter 8. So uh, let's begin. Psalm 2, most of us maybe can quote it. Why do the nations rage and the heathen imagine a foolish, vain, empty thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. He that dwells in the heavens will laugh at them. Uh, The Lord will eventually bring them into derision. The King James Version says derision. The word derision is not a word we're very used to. It's a Derisive means to, to, to it, it, the idea is he begins with laughter, then it, begins, it becomes mocking laughter, then it becomes anger. That's the, the, the progression here. You got to remember when you read the Psalms, uh, sometimes you're reading prophetic words, sometimes you're reading poetic words, sometimes you're reading the uh, mindset of the author of, of, uh, the psalm, like like the psalm that says uh, you should grab their babies by their feet and dash their brains against the rocks. I don't think the Holy Spirit would uh, ever bless that mindset. So you have to rightly divide the word of truth. And so when it says here that God will begin with derisive laughter and then it will go to uh, anger and finally it will go to crushing their skulls in Psalm 2. Uh, we got to keep in mind, you know, let the Holy Spirit interpret all this, but I don't want to get too much into that detail. Let me just uh, say that Psalm 2, I want to I begin with Psalm 2 because our subject today is praying for the nations, ruling in the midst of our enemies. Um, so if we're going to rule in the midst of our enemies, we need scriptural understanding of what this is all about. Um, I know that over the last couple of sessions, I've made reference to the, the fact that we really need a long, demanding session on the meaning of principalities and powers and what they have to do with the nations. And since we don't have time to cover that in this session we will take an entire session just on that subject, Lord willing. But I want you to keep in mind when we talk about the destruction of, of uh, the, the wicked ruling beings uh, who are over the nations, uh, God, God's heart is the, the redemption of the whole world. He wants to save the whole world. Uh, he intends to reach all nations. Uh, it's going to happen because it's prophesied to happen. How all that's going to unfold is is not clearly delineated. Every, to hear some speakers, you would think the Bible is giving us an ABC outline with great detail on this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And books can be sold and CD uh, recordings can be sold by the scadillions 
as long as you are giving people the idea that you've got some inside information on what's going to happen next. Uh, I've been watching this thing unfold now for over 50 years, and I can tell you uh, the way to understand end-time prophetic issues is humbly with your head bowed and your eyes on Jesus and making sure that you are doing what he's put in front of you to do and you're giving yourself uh, to the, you know, he's shown you, oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? That you know you're supposed to do. The rest of this we we see through a glass darkly. And people who don't admit that they see through a glass darkly and who claim to have some absolute knowledge and uh, clarity on certain subjects, I've, I tend to not pay much attention to them anymore because uh, when they make a declarative statement that's going to happen exactly this way by this time, and then it doesn't happen that way, instead of humbling themselves and admitting that they've been blowing smoke, they just carry on to the next raucous prophecy interpretation that they demand that you yield to. And uh, it doesn't come to pass, and then they go on to the next one. So uh, Scripture doesn't work that way. And I'm going to, I'll digress too much and get off of our main topic if I spend too much on this. But let me just say that uh, let's, let's let the Holy Spirit give us the understanding we need to help us live in the practical moment of everyday life with a prayer life that is ever increasing in faith and vision and purpose, whether it's prayer for our loved ones, prayer for the nations, prayer for the government, prayer for the wicked to be uncovered and brought down off their thrones, whatever it may be. Just make sure you're living in a life of prayer. Don't base it on some prophetic scheme that has to happen a certain way because just as sure as you set yourself on such a scheme as that and it doesn't come to pass the way your favorite Bible teacher told you it was supposed to happen, you will consciously or unconsciously lose your platform of of power in prayer and become passive and uh, be seduced into a place of inactivity and uh, even worse of uh, prayerlessness. So the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together. If you read the commentaries of some of the Hebrew uh, commentators of Psalm 2, as well as Psalm 110, which we're going to go to here in a little bit. Uh, you'll be amazed at how little they understand. I, I, I don't say that arrogantly. For heaven's sakes, they're far more erudite and understanding and linguistically equipped than I am. But this just goes to show that a person who's listening to the Holy Spirit may be much more insightful than a person with an accurate understanding of the original languages. Of course, it's best to have both, if you can. But one of the commentators that I just uh, studied on Psalm 2 just says, you know, this is nothing more or less than Hebraic hyperbole written at a time when David is under duress and his throne is being threatened And uh, there's a a hyperbolic statement in Psalm 2 about the nations bowing to David and uh, David being the the son of the the king, the son of God. Uh, And one footnote says, you know, all all ancient nations had a mythology that their king was the son of their God. Uh, Well, and that's true. That's true, but that's how you read this if you don't have the Holy Spirit directing you as to what it's about. Because really, what you have here is four spokespeople. You have the nations that are raging against God. You have God the Father. You have God the Son. And you have God the Holy Spirit. 
the nations are raging, and what they're saying is, uh, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us and live as if there is no God. And uh, then God the Father says, I will just laugh at them. Then I will become angry. Then I will move to bring them to the end of themselves. And again, let me just stress here, when, when we read verses that talk about God becoming angry, we are limited to human explanations of the development of anger. The, the Hebrew word for anger, for instance, here, is the same word as the word for nose. And it, it has to do with the flaring of the nostrils and uh, breathing deeply like an angry, mad person does. Now, you don't, you don't really believe that Almighty God has nostrils that, that flare when his blood pressure goes up and he grits his teeth and he slams his fist and he becomes enraged. This is poetically and prophetically accurate, but it, you get way off track if you start thinking it's literal in the sense that I just named. Just like Psalm 91, God does not have feathers we don't hide under his wings and under his feathers do we trust. God doesn't have feathers. He's far greater than needing feathers. So Whatever we read is only a shadow of what we're really talking about. So I'm not diminishing what, what I'm saying here. I'm saying what, what we're reading is only a shadow of something far greater. So does God get angry the way we get angry? No, he doesn't. But God's anger is pure and perfect, which makes it uh, a laser of accuracy and unmitigated fire. Uh, so I'm not diminishing his anger and his rage. I'm saying don't get, don't get the idea of God losing his temper. Because if you've got that idea, if you've come from a family where God, where, where, where your father or father figure got angry like that, you'll automatically transfer it to God and uh, it's not accurate, it's not right, it's not true, it's not life-giving, it's not helpful. But God, all, the, all it's saying here, if I can say it that way, is that there comes a point when God will say to the nations, you're, 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 you're funny, but you're no longer amusing and now it's time for me to show you uh, the reality of what what is and what is not uh, in the universe. And God will bring the nations under the lordship and rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says here, uh, to the Lord Jesus, the Father says to the Lord Jesus, uh, I have installed you as my king on my holy mountain of Zion. And, and I, I want to say this now, and I'll, I'll refer to it again when we get to the point where it's important to remember. But Zion is a tiny hill, comparatively small hill, upon which is built a, a relatively insignificant kingdom and from that small hill and from that seemingly insignificant kingdom, God says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will overturn them, destroy their rulership, and cause all the nations of the earth to do homage to the king who has been placed in Mount Zion. That's, that's the picture here in Psalm 2. Then the Holy Spirit finally says in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you nations. The Holy Spirit says to the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who then says to us, Ask of me, and I will give you nations. I remember when I worked with YWAM, how whenever we would sing that song, Ask of me, and I will give you nations, as an inheritance for you. Uh, there was such a, there was such an anointing that would come over us because everybody in the room had some skin in the game, so to speak, 
of taking the gospel to all the nations of the world. And uh, I remember, I, I can hardly quote it uh, at this moment without my eyes getting wet. Ask of me and I will give you nations. We are right now in the place uh, where uh, the church in the West, finally, finally, we seem to be awakening to the fact that we are called to the nations. Um, my my students, the the 20-something-year-olds that I interact with and disciple and teach, uh, almost every one of them has some vision for where they're supposed to be in the uh, reaching of the nations, the discipling of the nations. Uh, some feel it's to be inside uh, America, but most of them have some calling to the far-flung portions of the earth. And this verse comes to my mind, Ask of me and I will give you nations as an inheritance for you. And then the Holy Spirit says, Now you kings, be wise. Be instructed and warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent awe and worshipful fear. Rejoice before him with trembling, lest you dishonor him. Pay homage to the Son, lest he become angry with you and you perish in the way. For uh, you, his, kin, his wrath will be kindled. Now, here again, the, the, when you see the wrath of the Lord kindled, where do you see it? In Revelation chapter uh, chapter four, five, six, right in there. And and it, where does where does it describe the wrath of God, the wrath of the Messiah? Uh, I won't take the time to turn to it, but Revelation chapter six, he says, uh, the 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 lion of the tribe of Judah is about to roar and cause the nations to tremble. And I looked to see this lion and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain, freshly slain, a little lamb, a, a weak, defenseless lamb as if he had been slain freshly. The wrath of the lamb is the cross. And that's a whole other subject we can get into here. But everything you read in the Old Covenant, the, the former covenant, I don't like to call it the Old Covenant. It gives, I mean, sometimes people get the idea that you don't really have to pay much attention to the Old Testament scriptures, so we, we call it the Old Testament as if it's been displaced. And that's not the way the Holy Spirit writes the scriptures at all. It's all important and it's all the word of God. We have to learn to rightly divide it and you don't rightly divide it by calling it old and discarding it. But the point is that whenever you're reading in the, the Hebrew scriptures prophetically a picture of the end time wrath of God, you've got to always keep in mind the wrath of the Lamb who has been slain. Um, and we we read the scriptures from the cross backwards, not from prophecy toward the cross, if that helps you at all. But that's Psalm 2. Now, uh, several things in Psalm 2 relate to our, beside all the many, many things we could digress on and go chasing uh, after that would take all all of our time, that is this, that uh, Psalm 2 speaks of Zion, a tiny little insignificant area where all the nations of the earth will gather and worship and bring homage, not to King David, but to King David's son. Who is the son of King David? King David's Creator. How Je Jesus asked this question in the book of John, I think John chapter 9, uh, read the whole book of John, you'll find it. But Jesus asks, I'll ask you a question. You're always asking me questions. Let me ask you a question. Uh, and then he quotes Psalm 110 and uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he says, uh, who is he speaking to here? David 
David is speaking and David calls uh, this one that's being written about his son. And yet he calls him Lord. How can he, how can he be David's Lord and be his son? <laughs> Obviously Jesus is asking a theological question he knows they're not going to be able to answer. Let's just turn there, Psalm 110. And uh, I want to spend most of our time, remaining time, in Psalm 110, which is a prophetic picture of how we are to rule the nations in prayer, how we are to rule in life in prayer. And... uh, when you feel defeated or you feel any of those negative things that we talked about a while ago, uh, I want you to always remember Psalm 110. This is the most quoted verse of any uh, verse from the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures in the New Testament. It's quoted five or six times. Uh, and Just taking each one of those would take up all of our time. But I, I'll... I'll Take us to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 in just a little bit to look in some detail at how Paul refers to this verse. This this verse is cram-packed with prophetic revelation. And the reason that it's quoted so often in the New Covenant is because the New Covenant writers are going, Oh, I see, I understand. This is what that means. And so they quote it. It's quoted in Hebrews. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. It's uh, uh, Jesus refers to it, as I just said, various other places. But uh, Psalm 110 is kin to Psalm 2 in, in the prophetic telescoping of the end of the age and the purpose of God uh, in the establishment of his people as a people of prayer who engage the enemy of God in prayer. Psalm 110, the Lord God says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you want to do some study on this, Matthew 26, verse 64 Acts 2, verse 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, which we will turn to here shortly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, if you want to do your own study of this. But uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send forth from Zion the scepter of your strength. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness, in holy array, out of the womb of the morning. To you will spring forth your young men like the dew on Mount Hermon. The Lord has sworn and will not revoke or change it. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his indignation. He will execute judgment upon the nations. He will fill the valleys with, this translation says dead bodies. He will crush their heads over lands far exceeding and and far far and wide the idea is he will this doesn't make a bit of sense to us he will drink from the brook on his way and he will lift up his head triumphantly what in the world does all that mean well you don't have to agree with anything I say here I believe that that I have the mind of the Lord and I'm certainly not suggesting that I'm the only one who understands it this way. I learned these things from wiser heads than me, uh, and I'm passing them on to you. I believe the Holy Spirit is unfolding for us, unpackaging for us, 
the hidden treasures that are in Psalm 2 and that are also in Psalm 110 so that we can fulfill Romans 5 verse 17, which you don't need to turn to it, but Romans 5 17 says that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are to rule now in this life. We are to reign in this life. And every reference to ruling or reigning has some point in it of reference to warfare against enemies who have not yet come to a point of submission to the authority of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we need to address, uh, that I told you we're going to address uh, soon, is how it is that the scriptures are clear in Colossians chapter 1 and various other scriptures that it was at the cross that Jesus destroyed principalities and powers. He took away from Satan the keys of authority over death and hell and torment. And uh, as a result of that, he has uh, opened the way for all mankind to come into uh, its proper relationship to God and to life and to the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. How is it then that at the same time we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 and various other scriptures that we are still in conflict with those very same principalities and powers? This is such an obvious question. You would think we we would have had it taught to us in the early days of our Christian walk. But sadly, we haven't. Uh, And so it's one of those subjects that seems to make people go, I better not ask the obvious question of how this can both be true. I better keep my mouth shut. Well, let's don't keep our mouth shut. When you have a conundrum that doesn't make sense, you need to ask the questions that that should be asked about it. Uh, Religious wrong-headed religious fear, the wrong kind of fear, makes people swallow nonsensical doctrines that not only don't make sense, they're almost, they're almost blasphemous. If, if we take it to mean something that is absolutely nonsensical and we do it in the name of the Lord, we're not honoring the Lord. We're just being nonsensical and making people who question our faith have reason to question it. So we're going to spend one whole session, maybe two whole sessions, on answering that question, how Christ can conquer principalities and powers at the cross, and yet we are still in warfare and still in conflict. The reason I bring that up, and the reason this is such a difficult subject is because in order to be able to really grasp what I'm trying to get across from Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 here, as it refers to praying for the nations and ruling in the midst of our enemies, the reason uh, for me bringing that up is because you really can't understand what I'm saying today unless you thoroughly understand the answer to the question that I just told you we are not yet going to answer. So I'm going to be talking about things kind of as if you've already got the revelation of it in your mind, but I'm going to be unpacking it in sessions to come. So you may have to go back and forth and re-refer to these topics. You know, I used to not not try to bite off such large subjects in nightlight because obviously we're limited to an hour a month and uh, I've pretty much given uh, given up that that overprotective idea. I think all of you out there are studious enough, mature enough to feed yourselves. And if I don't answer your questions adequately in an hour of lecturing and a, and a recording, you've got the tools you need to go to the Lord and in the Scriptures with the Holy Spirit's direction guide you to the answer, and maybe could write me back and teach me some things that I'm grappling to, to understand. But just understand that Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 give us both, give us the same picture. 
It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead, being set as king of the world, ruler of the world, uh, ruler of the universe. All nations must give account to him, but instead of giving account to him, they're raging against him and seeking to overthrow his authority. And uh, the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I don't want to get into the prophetic schemes of different schools of thought that we've all heard for years. I think most of you know, because I can't really keep my mouth shut too long about it. I want to be respectful of your point of view. And if you differ from me, I think you know enough to know that I, I want to learn from you, and if you can offer me some information that makes me change my mind, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to hear it. But uh, over 50, 45 years ago, I stopped buying into the idea of the pre-trib rapture and uh, the seven-year tribulation and all the rest of it. Uh, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ will come back that his coming will be uh, the time when we rise to meet him in the air and that uh, we will meet him in the air and accompany him back down to the earth for the, the parousia, the, the appearing, the, the coming of the Lord. Uh, that fits a lot more scripture than I have time to get into now and I don't want to unpack any of that. Uh, I'm also bothered by the Western... Uh, convenient mindset that seems to imply that we in the West don't have to face tribulation. Uh, never mind that our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran and the Sudan and China and various other places are facing Antichrist and are giving their blood and seeing their their lives uh, under the, this kind of pressure. We, It's a very convenient doctrine that says we don't have to face that in the West and before anything bad can happen, we'll get raptured out of here. Another thing that bothers me about it is how it irresponsibly relieves us of our commission to take care of the earth and to steward the earth. The mindset that we had in the 70s was, well, it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket anyway. Let's hurry up and witness to as many people as we can and then fly out of here and let it all go to hell. That's just not scriptural. It's just not, it's just, it's pop Christianity. And a lot of people get their theology from uh, novels instead of the scriptures. And so I just want to be clear about that. You may differ with me on that, and I respect it. And I like listening to everybody's point of view. But one of the things that I, I have to say about pre-tribulationism pre-trib rapture thinking is, uh, among other things, it, 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 it seems to imply, whether you embrace this or not, that uh, a lot of people are going to end up uh, being left behind to face the Antichrist, and uh, we're not, and the uh, sooner we get out of here, the better, and I think that's all got negative issues that we have to confront. But, okay, having said all that, we are to rule in the midst of our enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 calls us a kingdom of priests. Kings and priests, the King James says. Kings and priests. Well, the reason that's significant is you know that in the... uh, uh, Hebrew scriptures, especially during the days of the establishment of the kingdom uh, under David and then Solomon, the kings were not to ever walk in the priesthood and the priests were not ever to walk in kingship. Why? Because that was going to only be fulfilled by the Messiah. But once Messiah has fulfilled the role of king and priest, we who are his heirs 
become alongside him a kingdom of priests or kings and priests. What do kings do? They rule. What do priests do? They intercede. So what do kings and priests do? They rule by intercession. So that being the fact, if we are to rule in life by Christ Jesus, it implies strongly that our rulership is done in intercession. And Psalm 110 refers to that because it says here, uh, verse 2, the Lord will send forth out of Zion. What is Zion? Zion is two things that seem contradictory to one another. Zion is a little hill outside of Jerusalem upon which has been set the kingship of Messiah. And from that little hill, all nations will be gathered together to pay homage and uh, come under judgment. And we who are with him, seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians 2 says, we are to rule with him, alongside him, as kings and priests. How are we to rule? The Lord will send forth out of Zion the scepter. What is the scepter? It's the rod of God's authority. You see it in the hand of Moses. You see it uh, in uh, uh, the tabernacle. You see it budding. Uh, it's, it's a dead stick, but the power of the Holy Spirit within it causes it to produce buds of fruit. Uh, the rod of God's authority is the rod of prayer. It's the rod of intercession. It's the rod of uh, the name of Jesus, the scepter of his authority. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Then verse 3 is a wonderful verse. Your people will make of themselves a free will offering in the day of your power, the King James says. But you can amplify this verse uh, uh, much more than that. Your people will make of themselves a free will offering of their lives in the day the sound of the trumpet calls for the gathering of the troops for war. The people gather with a free heart hearing the sound of the trumpet, to go into war. How do we go into war? In prayer. Uh, we are arrayed in the beauty of holiness. We're clothed in the beauty of holiness. And we come out of the womb of the morning. This is poetic, but it's also prophetic you know, sometimes a poetic, a poetic statement is beautiful, but it's not necessarily prophecy. Sometimes prophecy is not poetry, it's just prophecy. But sometimes it's beautiful prophecy and poetry all in one. And this is one of those times when the womb of the morning is pictured. What is a womb? Uh, obviously it, it implies giving birth. What does giving birth imply? Birth pangs. What do birth pangs imply? Uh, Matthew 24, uh, the, this is the beginning of sorrow, the beginning of birth pangs. Uh, uh, what do birth pangs do? They get closer and closer together and more intense as the time of the birth approaches. This is a picture of intercessory prayer. My people make of themselves a free will offering in the day that God gathers his army and in holiness in right relationship to God and in being set apart to God is the most important issue. It's not that you don't drink or smoke or chew. It's that you, you're set apart to God. And as a result of this, out of the womb of the morning, which is implied here a place of darkness, a place of pressure, but a place in the darkness and the pressure that is giving, giving birth, that is bringing forth life, uh, the womb of the morning... This is, this is the birthing of the day. Paul refers to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think he's referring to this exact verse, which would increase the number of references of this verse in the New Testament. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he says, you are not of the night, you are not of the dark, you are, you are children of the day. Children of the day. This phrase here, 
you will be people who give birth out of the womb of the morning, children of the day. Uh, people who have uh, the helmet of, of salvation on their head, who are not seduced by the raucous behavior of those who party all night and are drunk in the night, but you're wide awake because you're longing and waiting for the birthing of the morning. To you will spring forth your young men and your young women, I'm sure, is included in this, uh, who are like the dew. And the picture here is the of the sun shining on the dew on Mount Hermon, which if you've ever stood and watched it, I have not, but I've been told by people who have stood and watched the beautiful uh, birth of a new morning uh, blazing uh, in reflection from the dew of Mount Hermon. That's the picture here. The kingdom of God, a mountain of holiness and, and light uh, being being burst in the morning. And of course it also has to do with what comes to mind anyway is the verses in the Psalms that refer to weeping may endure for the night but joy comes in the morning. And uh, the prophetic picture to me is that this is referring to a people who have made of themselves a free will offering to God at the time when the nations are raging against Jesus, their king, uh, and they have made themselves a free will offering. But see, this is, this is the thing that we've got to get a hold of. It's, it's harder, I think, for men maybe to get a hold of this than women. We want the war to be uh, with the swords. Uh, there's something in, in the masculine uh, energy that wants to go to war. Gird up your armor, you sons of Zion. Gird up your armor. Let's go to war. We'll win this battle with great rejoicing and sing his praise forevermore. But it, the war is fought in, in the spirit. And this is something we're going to talk more about as we approach the, the question of principalities and powers. Uh, but... Uh, you, you've got to lay aside. That, that doesn't mean you don't engage uh, uh, politically. It doesn't mean you don't engage uh, when necessary uh, in battle, in war. Uh, I, got, I got many friends who are professional, full-time soldiers who are committed to the kingdom of God, but they're also committed to protecting the innocent, and they are God's hand extended. And if you don't believe that, uh, you just don't know the scriptures and you don't know the heart of God because uh, a good policeman or a good soldier is just as important to the furthering of justice and righteousness in the earth as uh, any preacher is. Revel, uh, Romans 13 says so, as well as spiritual common sense for that matter. But the, the point is, the ultimate battle that will finally be the birthing of the kingdom in its full beauty, like the dew on Mount Hermon, uh, is going to happen uh, in prayer. It's going to happen in the spirit. It's going to happen uh, through the cross. And it's not going to happen with uh, the weapons of, of war. It's not going to happen with the hands of man and the weapons of man and the, the wisdom of man. It's going to have to happen through the kingdom of, the, the kingdom of uh, the God through his people. I'm trying to get too much done in this session, and it's obvious I'm not going to do it. So rather than try to squeeze it all in, let me just say here, that uh, Psalm 110 doesn't make much sense if you read the remainder of it unless the Holy Spirit opens it up to us and gives us a prophetic understanding of it. Uh, but let's just read it. For, for, to be honest, most of the time when I teach on this, I don't even bother with these last verses because they're so hard to unpack. They're so hard to understand. And to, let's be honest. Some verses just don't make a lick of sense. And uh, when they don't make sense, there's no sense in playing like they do make sense. If the Holy Spirit hadn't un un unpacked them to you, 
and they're hidden, let them stay hidden. Uh, Proverbs 25 says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to un- understand them, to unpack them. And if they're not unpacked yet, there's no sense in coming up with a goofball uh, interpretation that doesn't make any sense. But some of these verses, I think the Holy Spirit does have something to tell us about them. For instance, it says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not revoke it or change it. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That verse doesn't make a lot of sense to anybody who reads it. Especially people who first read it in this context when it was written in Psalm 110. Doesn't make a lot of sense to us now. People say, well, yes it does. You just read over Go over to Hebrews and read about Melchizedek and it it tells you. All it really tells the reader of Psalm 110 at its original writing is that this being who is called by Yahweh, my Lord, and told to sit at his right hand till he makes his enemies his footstool has something to do with a strange character in the book of Genesis that we only know a teeny tiny bit about who's named Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness or king of peace. He was an early ruler of Jerusalem. Some people think he was really a pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ because it says of him in the book of Hebrews, he is without father, without mother, without beginning of days nor end of life, a priest forever. Those are mysterious verses. I got friends that have written books on it, and they even say in their books, I'm giving the best I can, but there's there's more mystery here. Then it says in verse eight, verse five, the Lord at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his indignation. Verse six, he will execute judgment upon the nations He will fill the valleys with dead bodies. But the Hebrew here is not real plain. It's it's not easy to say what this is referring to. And uh, if you're not careful, you'll get a picture of God saying, okay, I've held my temper long enough. Now let's bust some heads. Let's kill some people. Let's wipe out some bad guys. Let's destroy some some wicked people. the Hebrew phrase here in verse 6 seems to be, he will fill the valleys. But the, the word valleys and, and reference to dead bodies, the, the, those, those words are almost the same word. And the interpretation here is muddy. It's hard to understand. He will crush the heads over many lands far extended. What we do know in this verse, if we don't know anything else, is that God will bring all nations to proper relationship to Jesus. And Isaiah 45 refers to it, and it's quoted in Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every Greek commentary that I have read on those verses, if you can contradict me, please send me the information. But everyone I've read says that the bowing of the knee and the confessing of the tongue that Jesus is Lord is not something done by force but something done willingly and even joyfully. And that would concur with Psalm 2, which says, humble yourself and tremble before the Son with exceeding joy. And the word there is the word used in Hebrew to to describe celebration in twirling and dancing and rejoicing. So I don't think you can have a picture of God standing with his foot on people's throats under the duress of threatening torture or or death and have them twirling and rejoicing at the same time. As I said a while ago, we must read 
all previous scripture before the cross. We need, we need to go back and read it from the cross. The wrath of the Lamb, by the time all of this unfolds, uh, may cause us to have a very different view of how it will all wrap up than our popular uh, Americanized macho carnal desire for violence and destruction and vengeance uh, comes which is so so common and so popular and so I think so wrong because it dis it, it doesn't display the character of God uh, as the as the way the character of God is portrayed in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only wise God the exact image of the invisible God now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I've only got a few minutes to do something that I really need a lot more time to do but Paul's reference to Psalm 110 is found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh it's another set of verses we just don't hear a lot of preaching on. Uh, it may be a passing reference sometimes, but every time I've ever heard anybody bring it up, I want to say to them, please don't go so fast. You just skipped over some very important and hard to understand verses that we, we need to unpack. So let's try the best we can in the few minutes we got left to hear what Paul is saying in reference to Psalm 110. Because he says here, speaking to the Corinthians, and I, I'll have to not make any uh, side roads into what he's addressing to the Corinthians over their misunderstanding of the physical resurrection of the body, but, but in the context of that, he says, uh, beginning at verse uh, verse 23, Verse, well, verse 22. Even as all who are in Adam die, so also all who are in Christ will be made alive. But each one in his proper order. Christ, the first fruits. Then those who belong to Christ at his coming. Then the final stage of completion will come. Now I'm reading from the, the, uh, Passion Translation. Uh, the King James Version says, Then cometh the end. Well, everybody has read that thinking, well, that just means this comes, that's all. This is the end. That's not it. That's not the word. The word, the word that's translated here is more accurately the completion. The, the purpose will have reached its, its conclusion, not in the sense of the end of the movie, but the end of the, of the, of the goal, the, the end goal, which is the restoration of all things. Then the final stage of completion comes when he will bring to an end, what comes to an end is not the purposes of God, but every rulership, authority, and power, every dark, evil rulership, authority, and power. And he will hand over his kingdom to the Father God. Until then, he is destined to, rule, to reign or to rule as king until all hostility has been subdued and placed under his feet. The last enemy to be subdued and eliminated is death itself. The Father has placed all things in subjection to the feet under the feet of the Son. Yet when it says all things, it is understood that the Father does not include himself, for he is uh, the one who placed all things in subjection to Christ. You wonder why Paul has to say that, but you're in Corinth. I mean, he's talking to the Corinthians. Got to explain everything. However, when everything is sub is subjected in submission to Christ or subdued in submission to Christ, then the Son himself will make of himself subject to the Father who put all things under his feet so that God will be everything in everyone. Or the King James Version says all 
in all. Now, I'm not going to pretend to try to explain all this. I just want the scriptures to rattle your cage and uh, get your attention and make you think and make you wrestle with these verses. Read them in many different translations. These verses have been hard for people to deal with for years. I think the Holy Spirit is bringing us to the place where we are able uh, more to, to unpack them and understand them. But let me go back just for a few minutes in the closing minutes we've got and read these verses in reference to Psalm 110. Keep in mind, we've been saying all this time that Psalm 110 is a picture of the intercessory people of God operating in their kingly, priestly authority in prayer. That through our prayers, we extend the rod of authority. One of the things we're supposed to do with that rod of authority is Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you nations. I'm ask, I've been asking God for North Korea for, I don't know, three or four years. I've been asking God to break the power of North Korea. Break it open. I'm asking God... Uh, uh, I'm praying for Venezuela, as I'm sure many of you are. I'm praying for Cuba, for that thing to be broken, and for the wicked feeding of uh, support to that wicked government in Cuba that comes from American double-mindedness and wickedness for it to be exposed and destroyed. Uh, uh, the, The rod of God's authority. Sometimes in prayer, you find yourself not asking God for things, but speaking as if your voice and God's voice are one voice telling evil to get its filthy, stinking hands off of a certain thing. This is the people of God are beginning to awaken to pray for the breaking of the back of the sex slave trade. There's more sex slave trade right now than in any other time in history. Revelation chapter 18 speaks of all the merchandise of Babylon. Babylon is not New York City, for heaven's sakes. New York City is a great picture of it, but Babylon is all the world system that operates in wickedness. It may be Singapore, it may be uh, New York, it may be Los Angeles, it may be London, it may be Rome, but it's the whole wicked evil system. And it says that they they uh, trafficked in the bodies and souls of human beings, among other things. Praise God for the the breaking of that, the breaking of the stronghold in Hollywood, the breaking of the stronghold uh, in in Washington, uh, praying for the the collapse of wickedness. See, if you're not careful, if you don't have an eternal perspective, and if you don't see things from the throne of God, you will start thinking like a mere human being who's thinking, all my life it's been run by crooked politicians. Ain't no sense in voting. Why bother to vote? Doesn't make any difference anyway. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way until. But then we 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 don't have a vision for what happens after the until. I'm saying the until may be any minute. Any minute we may reach the until. We may be on the threshold of the complete annihilation of systems of darkness and evil and perversion and and crooked politicians and crooked systems and crooked Hollywood wickedness and drug uh, paraphernalia uh, uh, passing over our borders and uh, crooked uh, uh, judicial systems and I could go on and on and on. Uh, All these wicked systems. They're going to they're gonna come to an end. The Bible says they're going to come to an end. How are they going to come to an end? They're going to come to an end by the people of God extending the rod of authority from Mount Zion, a tiny little hill on the outside of nowhere which is ruling the world from prayer, through prayer. Then he says, again back in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the final stage of completion will come when He will bring to an end every rulership, every authority, and every power. And he will hand over his kingdom to the Father God. But until that happens, he is destined to rule as king until all hostility has been subdued and placed under his feet. That's where we are now. It doesn't say that he will rule until he raptures his church out and we get to go play for seven years while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. It says, through his people, ruling in life by Christ Jesus in prayer, 
as kings and priests from Mount Zion, which is in the eyes of the world is nothing, but according to Hebrews chapter 12, is the center power source of the universe, the throne of God manifested through Mount Zion, will extend the rod of authority through his people to bring down principalities and powers until finally when the the last principality and power of darkness has been brought down and put under his feet, he will turn the the kingdom over to the Father that that God may be all in all, whatever that means. Since Jesus is God too, I can't say God too. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we don't really know what that means. I'll tell you what we know it does mean. It does mean that evil will eventually be utterly destroyed out of the universe and everything God intended to be will be. God will have his ultimate will accomplished without any resistance and yet he will do it not by coercion and not by meanness because God's not mean and not by cruelty but by such a manifestation of the cross, such a manifestation of the wrath of the Lamb at the cross that it will break the power of evil in the entire universe and bring about the beginning, not the end, the beginning. Father, if I've said one word that might cause any confusion, you're not the author of confusion, but if I've said anything that has been troubling, you do trouble us so that we will get off of our passivity and seek you. And I I pray, Father, for every man and woman and young person who listens to Nightlight, who listens to this message. And I pray, Father, that it, it will awaken in all of us a hunger to know and understand, not so we can just gather information, but so that we can be moved in prayer to effectively participate in the fulfillment of these words for your glory and for the relief of the suffering of the universe that you died to redeem. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.